This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Leslie Jameson, author of the essay collection, Make It Scream, Make It Burn. The other big thing that I think about when I think about the relationship between 12-step recovery and my creative practice is like this idea, this premise that an ordinary life or like an unextraordinary life can be this source of kind of infinite narrative and infinite meaning and that a life doesn't have to be particularly extreme, superlative, remarkable in some way to hold all of that meaning. We'll hear more from Leslie Jameson in a few minutes. First, I want to invite you to be part of the First Draft community by becoming a member at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. I've heard that it takes listeners seven times to hear a pitch before becoming members, so I invite you to beat the odds. If this is one through six, or if it's seven or more, please consider how valuable your patronage is to this podcast. Your support keeps the essential voices of writers sharing their craft and their work over the airwaves. Membership starts at just $6 a month and includes perks like extra cuts from the interviews that don't make the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and perhaps best of all, pitch-free, ad-free episodes every single week. You will receive your own link to an ad-free, pitch-free first draft feed that you can play wherever you listen to podcasts. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters and join the First Draft family. Every month you get a newsletter and at random extra thank you gifts from me. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash First Draft Writers. I have an archive of more than 230 episodes, and I hope that from them you have learned something about craft and heard new and interesting perspectives about the world we live in and our human journey. I know that right now it's unlikely you are in front of a computer, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Maybe make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of, First Draft, reminder, membership matters. I am committed to bringing you in-depth conversations with today's best writers of fiction, nonfiction, poetry, and essays. And I also have a website now. You can find out more about the show at firstdraftwriters.com. Stay tuned at the end of this episode. I'll offer recommendations on other episodes you can dig into. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Leslie Jameson, fiction and essay writer. Her books include The Empathy Exams, The Gin Closet, The Recovering, and Make It Scream, Make It Burn. Jameson has worked as a baker, an office temp, an innkeeper, a tutor, and a medical actor. She teaches at the Columbia University MFA program, concentrating on nonfiction. Her newest essay collection, Make It Scream, Make It Burn, is separated into three sections. It begins with works of long-form journalism about people finding community in various forms and continues into critical pieces focusing on how we look at the world and document our experiences. Then in the third section, moves into the final, more personal essays in the book, which highlight Jameson's own experiences of love and loss and motherhood. Overarching themes include loneliness and longing, the search for inclusion, 
and the contexts we find to make sense of our world and our place in it. We began with Leslie Jameson talking about the title, Make It Scream, Make It Burn. So Make It Scream, Make It Burn is the title of one of the essays in the collection. And it's an essay about James Agee and his exhaustive, exhausting, frustrating, brilliant, crazy-making epic project, Let Us Now Pray Famous Son, an account of three sharecropper families in Alabama during the Great Depression. And the phrasing itself comes from an essay that the poet William Carlos Williams wrote about the photography of Walker Evans, where he said that his photographs made reality scream, um, that they took the details and objects of ordinary life and found this kind of urgency and truth inside of them. And I love that idea of making reality scream. And I started to think about the ways in which AG's writing also does that makes reality scream, the ways in which he, um, you know, at a certain point describes uh, a sound like a brush fire moving through a, a field, a farmer's field. And I thought about the ways that his writing makes reality scream, makes reality burn, which to me doesn't suggest violence so much as excavating and illuminating that urgency, even just inside of the ordinary events of day-to-day life. So for me, it resonated as a title for the whole collection because it speaks to my idea of what what writing can do and what art can do, which is look at these ordinary moments and and find this energy inside of them and try to express that energy. And it was certainly one of my hopes for what these essays could do individually and, and as a whole. I think it's interesting, too, when you write essays sometimes on assignment, as I think some of these were on assignments, and some are more personal and some are more journalistic. But then you took all this work that maybe some you had written specifically for this book, I don't know, and some you did otherwise, and you saw how they could be organized. And you organized the book into three sections, longing, looking, and dwelling. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your process of coming up with those section titles and if in a bigger way, maybe it wasn't that hard because maybe when you look at the things you write and the things that you're interested in writing, this is what it comes down to often. Yeah. So it was actually really exciting to think about putting this collection together. And it was a mixture of writing that I've done for magazines, most of which was pretty substantially and creatively revised and reworked for this collection, which is something we can talk more about, and then some writing that was done just for the collection. But it was really, I mean, as you were suggesting, it did end up feeling like this really organic process to bring pieces together and create new pieces, in part because like my sensibility and my mind are preoccupied and obsessed with certain things like the, no matter what I'm writing about or who I'm writing for. So these questions in the case of this particular book, like this question of how we are shaped by things that we can't fully know or can't fully see or can't fully grasp, um, things that we become obsessed with, things we long for but can't ever really have, like that idea of how we're shaped not just by like the things we have but by the things we don't have was this idea that even before I had consciously explicitly articulated it to myself, like it was 
it was something that obsessed me inside of magazine assignments. It was something that obsessed me in pieces that I was writing for myself. Um, so it ended up feeling like there were already these kind of subterranean rivers of ideas that connected a lot of pieces written over the course of like seven years, um, even though I didn't necessarily set out seven years ago with this particular collection of mind. So, um, you know, for example, like a piece that I wrote for The Atlantic about the online platform Second Life and the ways that people construct these elaborate existences for themselves online and these sort of digital avatars for themselves online that, that live these lives that they imagine that are very different from their day-to-day lives and in real time. That was a magazine piece, but it was also a piece, part of why I was drawn to writing it in the first place was because it connected to the ideas that I've been interested in for a long time of like how how the sort of fantasy selves that live inside of us and how those selves express our like unmet yearnings and longings, like the conversation that's constantly happening between those selves that live in fantasy and the selves that live, you know, in our bedrooms and our offices and our subway commutes and our day-to-day existences. Yeah, that essay, Sim Life, was one of the ones that I thought about the most after I closed the book because I think we are living in a time where we can present probably more of ourselves in different lights to the world than before there was all this technology in the sense that on Facebook, we can put our best selves forward. And maybe on Twitter, we put our frustrations and on Instagram, we put the beauty and sim life. It's a platform where people create a second life. They create avatars. They live in this other world. And at the base of it was sort of this question about what is reality? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, for me, it was important not to immediately create this hierarchy of like reality is the work we do and the kids we raise and the homes we live in. But to say reality is also where we wish we lived or the daydreams that we have or the things that we fantasize about being but maybe never become like those those fantasies and the ways that those fantasies live inside of us are part of us too are a reality inside of us too and part of what was powerful about second life was that it provided this kind of visual digital stage for some of those fantasies to play out and exactly like you say it's like you know second life in particular as a digital realm, like sort of hit its peak in like 2007. Um, and so it can feel a little bit like passe or outdated. But part of what I was really interested in was the ways in which like the kinds of things that the creators of Second Life imagined, like what if people led lives online that felt as real to them as their physical lives, like versions of that, of course, have totally come true in precisely the ways that you're mentioning, like on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, like people put so much energy into curating those identities and curating those selves. And so the idea of creating a second life online is still deeply resonant right now, even if it isn't happening for most people on the actual platform, second life. Um, and, and that idea, you know, it's the, it's the last, that essay, Sim Life is the last essay of the first section of the book when you were mentioning those three sections before 
longing, looking, and dwelling. Um, and it really was a kind of um, a crystallization of some of that question of like, how are we composed by what we long for? Um, and that's the, you know, one way to think about those three sections is in terms of like their their modes. So the first section, longing involves a kind of trio of big reported journalistic pieces. The second section, looking, involves more critical pieces, so about art, about literature, a piece of travel criticism about going to Sri Lanka and looking at the aftermath of the Civil War. And then the third section, dwelling, is is much more personal essays, although there's also some criticism and reportage in there. But, um, you know, it sort of sort of moves from like reporting to criticism to the personal, the gaze is sort of turning from outward to inward across the course of the book. But for me, there's also a real movement from examining things that are far away, sources and objects of yearning to things that are much more close at hand. So in a lot of the later pieces, thinking about domesticity and family life and parenting, not so much how do we long for the things we don't have, but like how do we live with the things that we do have. One of the things you wrote about early on that I thought was something that probably influences everything you write it was in an essay about some people who have extra perception maybe and or maybe remember or feel that they were reincarnated and have memories from their last life and you were trying to suspend your skepticism and be open. And one of the things you talked about was relating what you learned in a 12-step program to be more open, that it, it gave you a sort of grace that was almost required to enter all these worlds. And I think it was similar to some of your essays in the empathy exams, but I, I'm curious for you about how, how maybe that 12 step experience does influence all your life and your writing and maybe the way you look at the world. Yeah. Well, first of all, you're absolutely right that it does feel deeply related to my writing practice and the, the, the ways that I write and the kinds of things that I think are worth writing about, both of those feel pretty deeply inflected by by fellowship recovery. Um, and that was true in empathy exams, even though I wasn't writing explicitly at all about drinking or recovery. And it was certainly true in the recovering where that um, part of my life and the relationship between recovery and creativity was like the subject of the book itself. And then it is also true in a, in a lot of these pieces. The essay about reincarnation and kids who have past life memories um, was one of the pieces that I revised most substantially for the book because originally I wrote it as a piece of pretty straight reportage for New York Magazine. It was eventually published in Harper's, but again, it's like as as a clean state reported piece. But I felt in that great journalistic version that I hadn't really gotten at the core of what I wanted to say and all the layers of what I wanted to say. And so when I came back to the piece for this book, I was really able to actually write a version of it that felt truer and completer. And a lot of what felt more complete about it was that it was thinking about and explicitly writing about this connection between the ways in which 12-step recovery had asked me to suspend certain kinds of skepticism and a certain knee-jerk dismissal of cliche, of ways of describing life or experience that maybe felt too reductive, and 
that I realized when I suspended certain kinds of knee-jerk dismissal, I opened myself up to a lot of things that felt valuable. You know, people sharing their experiences in a way that I just found deeply moving, people finding consolation, resonance, provocation, even in other people's experiences, this sort of community of storytelling that also felt really meaningful, that, that when I just sort of sat back and tried to observe what was happening rather than immediately judging its value or dismissing it as not valuable, that I just like was able to perceive so much. And that approach of trying to like put skepticism on hold so that I could be open to perceiving what might be happening for someone or might what might be happening for a community, like that model of observation was something that I really found a kind of grounding in, in fellowship-based recovery, and then absolutely brought to my writing practice. Um, the other big thing that I think about when I think about the relationship between 12-step recovery and my creative practice is like this idea, this premise that an ordinary life or like an unextraordinary life can be this source of kind of infinite narrative and infinite meaning and that a life doesn't have to be particularly extreme, superlative, remarkable in some way to hold all of that meaning. And so a lot of my writing is about ordinary daily life or people who aren't particularly extraordinary in any way. I don't write about celebrities. So I think that sense of like the ordinary life as a site of art, which I've also been thinking about a lot as a critic, like I feel like I keep writing about these museum exhibits that are somehow devoted to that idea of the ordinary life as a site of art. Um, but that that premise and that belief that like every life has within it stories worth telling is a deeply held belief in in recovery and it's also something that I've sort of brought to my creative practice which is not to say that every story is created equal or somebody describing an experience that they've had is inherently art because they're describing it like it's not the idea at all but it's like the idea that the material of any given life could be the material of art if you ask the right questions of it or engage the right processes of excavation and illumination Going back to sort of this idea of ordinary life, I got the sense from your layover story, and I'd like you to to kind of talk about what it is and what it was about, that it wasn't, like some of these essays are planned, right? You go and you interview these people about, you know, sim life, and you know what's happening. I got the sense that the layover story was just a more spontaneous thing that happened to you, and that it became this essay. And to me, that essay actually epitomized what you were talking about, that you're fascinated by ordinary life and how people, maybe this woman who might have had an exceptional experience, it was actually the ordinary that was bothering her. So can you talk about that essay? Yeah, and- yeah, yeah. I love that way of framing it too. That feels really right on to me. So you're totally right. Layover story was not premeditated at all. And it is an essay about 24 hours in my life when I got stuck in Houston overnight because I missed a connecting flight actually coming back home to New York from reporting the part of the piece about past life memories, spending time with his family in Louisiana. I was, you know, routed back through Houston and um, missed a connection and so ended up 
in the Houston airport hotel with a group of other people who had missed their connections. And really what I'm narrating is the relationship that the brief provisional relationship that developed between me and one of my fellow passengers during our time at that Houston airport hotel and on our journey back to New York together. And this woman had uh, a sort of intricate, she had an injury and part of the arc of the essay is my evolving understanding of like the backstory behind that injury. Um, and over the course of my relationship with her and my changing sense of like her as a character, her backstory, the experiences that she was bringing to our like fraught encounter, I'm really thinking a lot about how it is that we judge each other as figures and in, in these like sort of narratives that we're constantly writing in each other's lives. Like I was sort of aware of the ways that I was turning her into a character and a story even before I was writing an essay about her and that, you know, with certain versions of her backstory, her pain became very noble to me. And when I learned more about her backstory, her pain became less noble to me. But, you know, the, I'm using just those 24 hours and those experiences of like being in an airport hotel, being on a flight together back to Newark as like ways of thinking about how we judge each other, sort of think we might know the full story of another person, but always, of course, there are things about them that we don't know. And I really liked what you said about the idea that at a certain point in the essay, I'm very attached to this kind of notion of an extraordinary story as the back as the background to her pain, but that actually that sort of undermined at a certain point, it, it turns out there's a much more ordinary story explaining her pain. And, and I'm, I, you know, trying to use that to think about really like why ordinary pain not matter as well. And of course it does matter as well. One of the things you reflect on in one essay in particular, you kind of say it outright, but it, it flows through a few of the essays is what does it mean to make art from other people's lives that came out in an, in an essay Maximum Exposure, that's the name of the essay, about a, a photographer who's basically spent most of her adult life going to Mexico to photograph this woman named Maria and her family, and that she basically has spent almost her whole life with this person, and sometimes you only spend a day or a month with people. It just comes back to this question, what does it mean to make art from other people's lives? That question of what is complicated, what is beautiful, what is celebratory and devotional, but also potentially kind of constitutes an act of violation or betrayal, how all of those can become like elements of the experience of making art from somebody else's life. Like that question is one that I'm examining as a reporter and a writer, making my own art out of other people's lives. But I'm also sort of looking at how other people have navigated that question or how other people's art becomes a, an enactment of those complexities. So, you know, looking at James Agee and that title essay, Make It Scream, Make It Burn. And then really the kind of culmination of those questions in certain ways is this case study and exploration of this photographer named Annie Appel whose work I started to get to know, uh, I guess, five or six years ago, uh, I became really fascinated by this project that she's been working on now for almost 30 years called The Mexico Journeys, where she, as you mentioned, has been photographing a single extended family. Initially, they all lived in Mexico. Now they live, various members live on both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border. She developed a primary relationship with this woman named Maria and just kept going 
back. At first, she told herself, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep photographing this family for 10 years." But then, 10 years became 20 years, and now 20 years has almost become 30 years. And I'm fascinated not just by her photographs and how they do things like capture very ordinary moments of experience, like we've been talking about, you know, capture um, a woman washing dishes, capture a husband and wife sitting in silence at the kitchen table in their trailer, capture a woman holding her crying child, how they find this real force and profundity in these very ordinary moments. They make them scream in the words of William Carlos Williams, um, but also really interested in her relationship to her process and why it's been going on for so long, how there's a kind of fantasy of totality or comprehensiveness that makes her never want to be done because to be done would be to say, okay, I'm, I'm reconciling myself to the inevitable incompleteness of this, that I will never capture these people fully. I will never capture their lives and their totality. I'm going to kind of draw a boundary around this. But I think part of the impulse to keep going is almost to to sustain this ongoingness and to sustain this fantasy that there never has to be an end to the documenting. And in that piece, I think a little bit about Borges' fable of the imaginary map, like a map that could capture the whole world, that that map would then have to be as large as the whole world. It's sort of an impossible map. And I think about Annie's ever-expanding canon in Mexico photographs as a kind of, as reaching towards this impossible map. Um, but her work seems like, to me, not only very moving in its in its aspirations towards infinitude, but also really illustrative of a lot of these kind of tensions and paradoxes that, as an artist, you might want to document another person somehow in their entirety, but even as you know that you can't ever really do that. Yeah, you mentioned in there that you felt flooded by her need to connect. And I'm wondering if that happens in more than just this instance for you, because you're not necessarily coming in doing hard news where you're impartial and you're really just trying to do the facts. You're there to, in some cases, I was thinking about it a, a lot in terms of um, when you met with the family who had the child, uh, James, who basically from a very young age had these memories of living his life as someone else from his past life and how for those people to have someone like you to come in and listen might be another instance where you experience people who really want to connect and people want to tell their stories and you're like this sponge taking them in. I've experienced like many versions and I'm sure I've also like uh, directed this energy at other people because I'm not only somebody who like has been a sponge absorbing other people's stories, but I've totally been a person seeking a sponge, wanting people to absorb my own. You know, I, I don't, I don't think of myself as like exempt from that hunger to be witnessed or listened to or heard. And so I'm sure I've, I've voiced that need on others as well. Um, a couple of thoughts. One is that one of the main subjects in the first essay in the collection, which is the essay about the, wow, the whale who became known as the loneliest whale in the world. And uh, he's this sort of 
uh, he's an elusive blue whale who's actually never been seen, but he has a, a mating song that's much higher pitched than any other blue whale whose song has ever been recorded. And he's always, every time he's been tracked, he's been tracked moving through the water on his own, never as part of a pod. And because of his unusual aloneness, he sort of developed this reputation in popular media as the loneliest whale in the world and kind of amassed this following of devotees who connected to him for all sorts of reasons and projected all sorts of things onto him. Loneliness, uh, independence, heartbreak, that kind of adamant um, autonomy, like he, he became a sort of mascot for people of whatever they needed him to be a mascot of. Um, and one of the main figures, I was I was interested in him as a whale, but I was really largely interested in why people became obsessed with him. And one of the main subjects in that essay was this woman named Leonora, who discovered 52 Blue, this whale, when she was recovering from a coma and learning how to speak again and learning how to walk again. And he became uh, the sort of source of inspiration to her, like that he lived outside of society, but sort of owned his own solitude. And that that was something she needed to, to see an example of at that moment in her life. Um, but she was somebody who I think really wanted her story to be heard. She wasn't a famous person. She was somebody who was telling me her story because I had found her online when I was looking for people who were obsessed with this whale. And she had, I think, pretty deep feelings of loneliness and pretty deep feelings of existing outside the primary streams of human experience. And and so I think that she, she, you know, she did have a real desire to to be heard and to be witnessed. And, you know, as a writer, of course, there's something that's useful about that desire because you want to witness and you want people to want to share their stories with you. Um, but when people feel that desire so deeply, it also feels like easier to exploit it. Like there's something vulnerable about them and wanting so badly to be seen and wanting so badly to be heard. So um, I have often tried to figure out how to navigate that tension of, you know, bearing witness, but not like feeling like I was sort of pouncing on somebody's desire to be witnessed in this way that was ultimately exploiting them. I think too, an issue that came up in that essay that again had resonance in other essays was kind of that people see what they need. All these people were kind of seeing this 52 blue as a symbol for their loneliness and was human projection on the animal world and giving meaning to something that maybe we don't fully understand what the meaning is for. And those ideas carried over into the third section when you write about the Museum of Broken Hearts, where there's a museum in Zagreb, Croatia, where people put objects of their breakups. And one of the things you wrote in there was that people see what they need. And I think that actually came from the woman who started it. So the, the, the story behind the museum is that there was a woman named Olinka and her boyfriend Drazen. They, they were breaking up and they were dividing their possessions and it was so sad. And she was thinking about how in some ways to pay monument to their breakup and the things, the detritus, I guess, that's left over. And that she heard a tour guide basically saying that it started as a joke and that was not why. And she was saying, I think to you, that people see what they need to see. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that essay about the Museum of Broken Relationships, I think, connects to what we were just talking about in a few ways. Um, Certainly that sense of people finding what they need to find. And, you know, when visitors come to this museum and they see these objects that are like artifacts from the lost civilizations of these relationships that no longer are haven't continued into the present, like, you know, a toaster or a toilet paper dispenser or a mixtape from Sarajevo in the mid-90s or a handmade modem or an axe or, you know, I mean, the variety of objects is just sort of astonishing. And each one has this little narrative attached to it written by the person who donated it, explaining a little bit about the relationship that it comes from and sometimes how the relationship ended. Um, But the people... You know, every single visitor to that museum is bringing their own secret history of loves and broken loves and, you know, hopefully maybe some present tense enduring loves too. But that they're, when they're looking at those objects, you know, they're finding emotional narratives in them and probably sometimes projecting emotional narratives onto them that are the things that they need to feel in, in order to, you know, make peace with their own lives or, you know, convince themselves to end the relationships they're inside of, or convince themselves they need to stay in the relationships they're inside of. Like, that's the truth of what happens in that museum is the truth of how we're always engaged with other people's lives. It's just sort of we, our vision of other people's lives is sort of always textured by and attuned to what's happening in our own lives. But I also think that this question of, like, wanting to be witnessed and the ways in which subjects, some of the subjects who I write about have this intense desire to be witnessed, like, that's also at play in that museum because part of why people donate objects is that they, it makes them feel good to think about other people bearing witness to these objects, seeing these objects, thinking about the relationships that these objects testified to or emerged from and especially with when something has been lost like a relationship or a love it can almost be this way of granting it this small thread of continuing existence to think that people are holding it in their minds or regarding it in some way so I think that you know that desire to be witnessed is also a play in that museum the idea of like an ordinary life as something that's worthy of being preserved in a museum or an ordinary object or something that belongs in a museum. Like those ideas are also really present in that essay too. Yeah. I know you said in there for yourself that, that, um, you know, at the heart of a lot of your friendships is that need to have your friends witness you uh, or, or witness your pain if you're going through a breakup and that idea that I come back to from so many of these essays is that people have so much loneliness and longing and it reminds me a little of that you know Portuguese concept of saudade if I'm saying that right where we just miss things that we almost we've we miss things that we've never had and I'm wondering you know through this book and your last book of essays if what you think about that I am really fascinated by that idea that missing something or being nostalgic for something can take more complicated forms than just having something and then losing it. Like you might feel nostalgic for the idea of something. You might feel nostalgic for the way that memory has constructed a past relationship is maybe rosier or happier than it once than it ever was. You know, I wrote about that in that essay about breakups, actually, the way that 
one of the things memory can do or nostalgia can do is once something is over, like I say, you know, nostalgia sort of like tidies up the bedroom of memory and makes it seem sort of like neater or more beautiful than how it was. And so in that sense, you're not actually missing what you had. You're missing something that you never had. You're missing something more perfect than what you had. Um, I also think about it in relation to family and the ways that like we don't necessarily we know the people in our family, but we don't know all of them, and we don't know often who they were when they were young. So we don't know our parents before they were our parents. We don't know our grandparents before they were our parents' parents. And so the hunger that, that I have sometimes felt to sort of know even the people who are closest to me in my own family is also like I'm, I can sort of feel like I'm missing a ghost limb in terms of missing a version of them that I you know, never even got to, got to meet. In some of these essays, you altered them from their original appearance in a magazine. And I got that sense completely from the essay that you wrote about going to Colombo. Um, it was called Up in Jaffna. And it's, I think you were on assignment to go there like you didn't know where you were going until like the day before and then you went and you ended up in Sri Lanka. I don't know if this essay was a case of that. Yeah, I mean, you know, what's interesting is that piece evolved a lot from my initial conception of what it was going to be. Um, but it, the magazine actually ran it much to my surprise in a very different form than I thought they would be open. So the the version that showed up in the book, a lot of the essays in the book changed quite a bit from their original magazine publication, but that one that one actually didn't. But the but it did evolve quite a bit along the way before it was published in that magazine. So the story of that piece was it was a piece I wrote on assignment, and the assignment was this ongoing feature in in a travel magazine called Afar called Spin the Globe, where they, you kind of give them a week of your life. They buy you an airplane ticket someplace on earth, but don't tell you where they've gotten you a ticket to go until 24 hours before your flight. Um, so you know you're going somewhere and you know you're going to spend a week there, but you have no idea where you're going. And I went to Sri Lanka. And when I found out that I was going to Sri Lanka, I did, a t- so you're really not able to plan anything very far in advance. And so I did a ton of kind of last minute talking research and talking to people in my life who knew about Sri Lanka or were um, in a few cases, like their families were part of the Sri Lankan diaspora and ended up deciding that I really wanted to try to go to the northern part of the country, which is much, much harder to get to and much, much less touristed and where most of the uh, violence of the civil war occurred. Um, and so the piece ended up becoming a, a document of my travel journeys, but it also really became a meditation on what it means to, to try to go someplace to witness the aftermath of violence and the limits of what we can see in that act of witnessing. And, you know, it ended up being about three times as long as that feature typically runs. And it ended up questioning the premise of the feature in a pretty fundamental way, which is to say, what does it mean to create a kind of travel literature that's predicated on not knowing very much about a place before you go there? And what are we 
fetishizing or glorifying about that kind of innocence by designing that assignment itself in that way. And I, I, to, you know, to to my editor's credit and to Afar's credit, they were like, we are totally going to run this piece at three times the length of this feature, and we're totally going to run this piece, even though it contains a kind of critique of the premise of the assignment itself. So, you know, I think that's part of why it reads like a very different version of the essay than you would imagine running in the magazine, but I think it says great things about the magazine that they were like on board for an essay that was, you know, critiquing some of the the premise of its own of its own assignment. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yes. Um I'm gonna read a passage from Marilyn Robinson's Housekeeping, her novel Housekeeping. And it's actually, it's a passage that's influenced me really deeply. And it's also the packet, the passage um, that the epigraph of Make It Scream, Make It Burn is, is taken from. It's a passage I've loved for a really long time. Sylvie stood up and stretched and nodded at the sun, which was a small, white, wintry sun, and stood a scant zenith, although it was surely noon. We can go up there now, she said. I followed her up into the valley again and found it much changed. It was as if the light had coaxed a flowering from the frost, which before seemed barren and parched as salt. The grass shone with petal colors and water drops spilled from all the trees as innumerably as petals. I told you it was nice, Sylvie said. Imagine a Carthage sown with salt and all the sowers gone and the seeds lain however long in the earth till there rose finally in vegetable perfusion leaves and trees of rime and brine. What flowering would there be in such a garden? Light would force each salt calyx to open in prisms and to fruit heavily with bright globes of water. Peaches and grapes are little more than that, and where the world was salt, there would be greater need of flaking. For need can blossom into all the compensations it requires. To crave and to have are as like as a thing and its shadow. For when does a berry break open the tongue as sweetly as when one longs to taste it, and when is the taste refracted into so many hues and savors of ripeness and earth, and when do our senses know anything so utterly as when we lack it? And here, again, is a foreshadowing. The world will be made whole. For to wish for a hand on one's hair is all but to feel it. So whatever we may lose, very craving gives, us back, gives it back to us again. So we dream and hardly know it. Longing, like an angel, fosters us, smooths our hair, and brings us wild strawberries. Would you like to say anything more about that? Um, I think I, I just have always, I mean, I love the... I love the image at the core of this passage, this valley covered in frost that a girl and her aunt discover is this sort of, um, this land that is simultaneously freezing and harsh, but also really beautiful. And I love the ideas that it delivers us to that lack and longing and absence are rich States as well, but like lack and longing attune our sensitivity to the things we long for, and and that idea of longing as this very generative, very attentive state is certainly one of the ideas at the core of the collection as well. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard, or changed a lot from the first draft. 
So this is the end of the essay in the collection called We Tell Ourselves Stories in Order to Live Again, which is about children who have memories of prior lives. Ultimately, this is what appealed to me about the story of reincarnation, that it asked me to believe in a self without rigid boundaries, a self that had lived before and would do it again. In this way, it was a metaphor for what I was struggling to accept without living at all, that nothing we lived was unique, that we were always, in some sense, living again. Reincarnation is an assertion of contingency. I could have been anyone. Maybe I was a nurse or a hitman or a mean guy or a hero. Maybe I was a colonial explorer, a colonized subject, a queen or a sailor. It's humble and it's the opposite of humility, the same way people can read my tattoo as empathy or arrogance. Nothing human is alien to me. In all my wrestling with reincarnation, I'd been looking for a way to get humble in the face of consciousness, to be the teacher writing, wow, 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 rather than giving a letter grade. Reincarnation struck me as an articulation of faith in the self as something that could transform and stay continuous at once, in sobriety, in love, in the body of a stranger. This faith believes a 13-year-old boy in Queens might not be lost for good. This faith says, come back. Come back to Lafayette, to Virginia, to Myanmar. Come back with scars telling a story no one understands. To a lawn full of crumpled plastic reindeer or a house overlooking skeletal winter trees. To a jet mechanic throwing sticks for the dogs. A man who refuses to believe you were ever a lost boy in Long Island City. Come back to some suburb off the interstate, some condo, some row house. Come back remembering so you can tell us where you've been. We want to know. We watch a little boy wear his cowboy boots to the pool. We watch a little man who can't get out. We watch the past fill the present like smoke. The memory of sisters and parachutes and flames. We say, wow. We say it again. We stay humble. We can't know for sure until the body turns up in the river. And even then, it might not be the end. We walk toward the lights. We are safe or else we aren't. We live until we don't. We return unless we can't. Do you want to say anything about that? Um, Well, I guess the reason I chose it was because I did revise, as we were talking about earlier, I did revise this essay about reincarnation really substantially from its original iteration. It's a pretty straight journalistic piece for New York Magazine and then for Harper's, um, where I felt like I couldn't really get into my own personal obsession with reincarnation, what was me about other people believing in reincarnation, what reincarnation seemed to suggest about itself, the connection between reincarnations, the vision of like an interchangeable self passed from body to body and what I was finding so moving about 12-step recovery and this idea that experiences were very common or even interchangeable between people. And so it felt really, really liberating to return to the material of this essay, these narratives of families who had past life memories, but to be able to return to that material with a confession and an exploration of my own investment in that material to be able to think on the page about why and how I found it moving. So um, it was really an instance where revision wasn't just like line edits and trudging through, you know, busy work. Revision was really like breaking a piece open and 
trying to find the core of it in a way that I hadn't in the in the first drafts and the first iterations. Where do you write? I write at my kitchen table. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? <laughs> um, I take care of a two-year-old. <laughs> Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Uh, my first reader is usually my friend Colleen, who's one of my closest friends in the world and, and uh, a writer as well and somebody I've been trading work with for almost 15 years now. How have you dealt with rejection? Um, you know, honestly, the only way through rejection to me is to throw myself into another writing project that I feel really excited by. And what is your favorite word? Um, electric. Well, thank you so much. So thank you so much for your like thoughtful, thoughtful, thoughtful questions about the book. I can't even tell you how I just, it, it really is like an honor. It means a lot to me um, to, to feel the way you read the work so carefully um, and spoke about it so intelligently. I really, yeah, it just, it means a lot to me. So thank you. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Leslie Jameson, author of the essay collection, Make It Scream, Make It Burn. If you like today's show, check out my first interview with Leslie Jameson on her essay collection, The Empathy Exams. You can find the entire archive of interviews on my website at firstdraftwriters.com. You can follow First Draft Writers on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and transcripts. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to www.patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Thanks so much for tuning in. Coming up on the next few episodes are interviews with Walter Mosley, David Quammen, Adrian Brodeur, and Jeannie Venasco. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rathkin. Thank you for listening.